If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be in this study and uh, in 1 Corinthians. It's going to carry us from now all the way through the end of the year. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we're, you're, you're here near the beginning of the series. It's only about, uh, I guess this will be the num- number four in the series. So we're still pretty early on. And, and today we get to, to some of the heart of, of the reason Paul wrote this letter. Uh, chances are most of you are familiar with the phrase, less is more. Does that, you guys feel like you know what that means? I'm guessing you've heard it. You have a good idea what it means. It gets at the reason. Well, let me put it this way. There are a couple places you can get a barbecue sandwich on West End Avenue. You could get a sandwich at Hog Heaven, which I highly recommend. If you don't have lunch plans, it's awesome. And I think they're open on Sundays. Hog Heaven is this little shack. Uh, that's right next to Centennial Park, and they basically only serve barbecue sandwiches. They do one thing. They smoke meat and concoct delicious sauces, and they serve it out of a place that you can't even really sit. There's a picnic table in there, I think, maybe a bench, but there's no, there's no real seating. There's certainly no service. They do one thing, and they give themselves to it completely. You could also go to TGI Fridays on West End and get a barbecue sandwich. At TJ Fridays, they try to do everything, so they don't do anything very well. Sorry if you like it. That's just the truth. And even if their barbecue was good, it isn't, I'm sure, but if it was, you wouldn't know it. What with all the full-color images in their menus of their tacos, their baked fish, their salad bars, etc. Hog Heaven is an example of what you might call minimalism, Right? They give themselves to one thing. They strip away everything else. They give themselves to what matters, obviously, barbecue. They give themselves to to communicating with clarity that everything they do is meant to highlight this one product. The passage we're going to look at this morning is Paul's ministry philosophy. It's what you might call a hog heaven philosophy of ministry. It's what I'm calling gospel minimalism, gospel-centered minimalism. Paul is laying out for those people he's writing to what he was about when he came to them, what he's going to be about every time he interacts with them, and what he wants to make perfectly clear to them through the message he communicates and through the way that he communicates it. He's all about Jesus. That's the the beginning and the end of it. So this morning, what we have is a little bit different sort of opportunity for us at Trinity. uh, Normally, passages that we consider are are just sort of tied to generic Christian living. They they, they explain the gospel to us and call us to work it into the details of our lives. And that's certainly true of this passage today, but but one of the byproducts of, of just taking a letter and going through it verse by verse and taking what comes next is that sometimes in the natural course of that, you find yourself landed on things that are more about philosophy of why you do what you do than they are about sort of working the gospel into the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And we want to claim those opportunities when they come to us, opportunities to not just sort of put in practice our ministry philosophy at Trinity, but to talk about it so that you recognize better what's behind the scenes, what decisions have been made that lie behind the way we operate here. And that's kind of what today provides for us. It's, it's an opportunity to, to think about the vision for the congregation we want to, to, to see put into place here in Nashville. And so if you're an unbeliever this morning, 
please don't run out the door, all right? You're, uh, I know if, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, the idea of a church sermon that's going to be all about why the church does things the way it does sounds really in-house to you. Uh, a lot of inside baseball. And to an extent, that's true, but, but I want you to think of this morning as a, a different sort of opportunity. I think it's actually a chance for you to get a stripped-down version of what the church is all about. So if you're considering Christianity, I'm going to try to pitch it to you today in a way that's clear and compelling and, and minimalist. Here's what we think the church is all about. So it could, could be a learning opportunity for you. If you're a visitor for, uh, with us today, uh, this is a chance for you to hear more directly than you normally would what we're aiming for. Right, we're just kind of going to lay it out there for you today. So it's a good chance for you to see what our church is about and whether this might be a place for you to plug in. And if you're a member here at Trinity, then today is an opportunity for you to sort of rethink about things that you've probably heard before, but that never get old and are always in danger of being lost. Our gospel focus is always going to be countercultural and against the drift that's in all of our hearts towards things that are more tasteful, more appealing, more attractive. And so we want to recenter today by looking at this passage. That's where we're headed. Now, I want to set it up for you, and then we're going to read it together before we get into the details. Um, if, if this is your first time with us, Paul, the, Paul's section that we're going to look at today, which starts at chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, falls in the middle of a bigger conversation where he's sort of calling his friends on the carpet for the way that they have divided from each other. And the reason they divided from each other was they were, they were really trying to, trying to look good. They wanted, they wanted one-upmanship over each other. So they were, they were trying to align with these teachers of Christianity, saying, it's not, basically, it's not enough that we're all Christians. I'm also a Christian that's attached to this guy in the way that he presents Christianity, or I'm with this guy in the way that he presents Christianity. Or, I, like, I like his way of speaking or the way that he carries himself while he talks. And they, were, they were separating themselves from each other on the basis of these attachments that have nothing to do with Jesus. And so Paul's calling them on, into account for this. And he's reminding them now, in this passage, that when he came to them... He was all and only about Jesus, that his message was about Jesus, and that the way he presented his message was meant to get out of the way, so they wouldn't remember him, so that all they would notice would be what he says about Christ. Basically, verse 5 in chapter 2 is the theme. This is what we're going to unpack this morning. Verse 5, he says, his point, his aim, is that, that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So here's a way to think about the question we're going to be driving towards today. If our aim is that our faith rests in the power of God, not in the wisdom or flashiness of anything human, what kind of ministry philosophy, what kind of approach or goals would we have to set out? What would our message need to look like? What would the way we present that message need to look like? Two points. Our message must always focus and only focus on Jesus and his cross. That's the first couple verses. And our methods, the way we present that message, must clarify the power of the cross, not distract from the power of the cross. Those are the two points. Hopefully that's clear enough. We're going to get into some details. Now, if you've found the passage, now that you've found that, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as I read from from the first five verses of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might rest 
not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So first point is this, pretty simple, pretty straightforward. If we want people's faith to be in God and not in us, then our message must focus always and only on Jesus and his cross. That's the point of verses 1 and 2. Basically here, Paul's picking up where he left off in verse 17 of chapter 1. That's where he had been calling them out for their divisions. And he he builds to, in verse 17, telling them, Christ didn't send me to baptize and try to attach you to me. He sent me to preach the gospel, basically to just tell you about him. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And chapter 2 picks that back up. When I came, I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what I wanted to be about and nothing else. The point is pretty simple and straightforward. He wanted to be all about Jesus and Jesus' death and the benefits that Jesus' death offers to those who trust him. He wanted to be about what we call the gospel, the good news. The gospel is this. All of us suffer from a fundamental underlying problem. And it isn't the things that have been done to us, as awful as those could have been and as much pain as those may have caused. There's an underlying problem that all of us share that's in us. It's a problem the Bible describes as a rebellion against the authority of the one who made us, the one who promised to love us and protect us, a rejection of his offer to care for us, and a placement of ourselves as our sole provider and protector in his place. It's it's to shame him, to tell him that he can't be trusted, that we could do better on our own. That's the problem all of us face. It's a problem that shows up in, in, in a host of ways throughout our lives. The promise of the gospel is that God has not allowed our rejection of him to be the final word on our relationship with him, but has come to us when we turned our backs on him, that he even came into this world himself in the form of a human, and that he took the penalty that our rejection of him, our treason against his loving authority required, that Jesus died so we don't have to, and that he offers now through Christ everything that we need. Sort of summarized in verse 30 of chapter 1 that we looked at last week. Verse 30 says, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God's mercy towards you, he has attached you to Jesus. And here's what you get in Jesus. You get the wisdom of God. And that's, that's a wisdom that includes righteousness. You are who you are supposed to be, who you failed to be on your own. Because you're in him, you are righteous. You are sanctified. That means transformed, made holy taken out of the bondage to sin that all of us have suffered from. And not immediately, not overnight, but over time, changed so that we look like Jesus in our lives. He is our redemption. He is the one who has redeemed us out from under our our slavery to death. Death that hangs over all of us like a cloud that's coming for us one way or the other, like it or not. Jesus has redeemed us from bondage to death and placed us in a realm of hope and light a kingdom that has no end. That's the promises of the gospel. And Paul wanted a message so consistent, so clear, so repetitive, so exclusive that there is no chance his hearers could get distracted by anything else. He wanted them drilled down on the gospel and seeing nothing but it. He wanted Jesus to be what they noticed, Jesus to be what they talked about, Jesus to be what they identified with, Jesus to be what they prized above all else. That was his goal to know Christ and Him crucified. Now, in another one of his letters, 
Paul calls this gospel the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This message, he believes, is the only thing that's powerful enough to do what all of us need done. It's the only thing that can really meet us where we are and lift us out of that place. Anything else would be just a distraction from our deeper needs and from what God offers us. Let's say an oncologist had possession of a new miracle drug to cure cancer. A drug discovered, no doubt, by one of our fine cancer biologists here at Trinity, right? Would this physician, if he had this drug, would he still be talking about outdated or partial treatments? Would he still be peddling radiation and chemo? Things that work to an extent, but often not fully? Would he still be talking about invasive surgery? Much less, would he, would he be talking at all about antibiotics? Or about Tylenol? Or about bloodletting? These, these things that maybe help in one way or another. Not so much the bloodletting, that's old, outdated, but the antibiotics and the Tylenol. These are targeting certain things, and they can work if they're applied properly. But the point is, they, they just have nothing to do with what you, that fundamental underlying need. They don't, att- they don't attack cancer. They might be helpful in some areas, but not where it matters. So, for example, dieting might help to stave off heart disease. But it does nothing to replace spiritual heart disease. It does nothing to address the fact that we love what we shouldn't love. And we fail to love God as we should. And we fail to love each other in a way that's selfless and Christ-modeled. So we could talk about dieting at Trinity, but we're not going to because it has nothing to do with what we really deeply need. I think that's Paul's point. The physician who's got the cure to cancer, if he really loves his patients and if he really wants to see them cured, he's going to be singular in his focus. He's going to be repetitive. He's going to be redundant even. But it's always going to be true and it's always going to be powerful. And that's what Paul wants in his message about Christ. And that's what we want here at Trinity. We want to be all about Jesus. We want him to be the focus of everything we say, of everything we sing, of everything we read, and everything we study together. We want to approach the Bible, the whole thing, from beginning to end as a book that's about him, that prepares us to see why he matters, why he offers us what no one else can. We want to see all of life as flowing from who we are in him. And we're going to avoid subjects that might distract us from him. Subjects that might be important. Subjects that a Christian view of the world might actually have something to say to, some bearing on. But that maybe are just too complicated to apply our authority to speak to the gospel to those issues. So, for example, we're not going to preach about appropriate health care policy in America. I'm not saying that Christian values don't speak to that issue one way or the other. I'm saying it's hardly clear how they speak to that issue. And we're not going to take a stand on it. Because if we did, the chances are that you might be tempted to identify with our position on the appropriate health care policy in Western nations rather than in our position that we are all helpless apart from Jesus. We're not going to talk about third world debt and whether or not Western countries should forgive it. That's an important issue. Christianity could have things to say to that issue one way or the other. We're not going to talk about it because it's really complicated. And we're not going to stake a position out on something that we have no clear word from Scripture uh, to, to, to do that, to justify that. We're going to talk about Jesus. Now, 
that doesn't mean that other topics besides Jesus' death don't come into play, right? We're going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk about parenting. We're going to talk about sex and money. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about conflict, right? Paul talks about these things. In our letter, 1 Corinthians alone, just this one letter, Paul talks about the cross and division, the cross and sexual ethics, the cross and whether or not it's good to take somebody to court, the cross and Christian freedom, the cross and money, the cross and conflict. In other letters, he talks about the cross and marriage. Think about Ephesians 5, the cross and parenting, Ephesians chapter 6. Jesus, to, to focus on Jesus and on his death is not to just sort of put blinders on to all these real needs we have in our lives. It's to say that we think the only thing that's going to solve all of these symptoms in our lives where there's trouble is to, uh, is to address the underlying issue, to apply the cure God has given us, and to drive it home. So that's what we're going to be about. We're going to be about Christ and him crucified. Now, here's the bigger question. This is the trickier question, and it's the question that, that this passage we're in today, these five verses, is more given to. How should we present this message if we want this message to be the only thing anybody notices? What would it have to look like? Our methods of presenting it have to look like if people are going to walk away from our services talking about Jesus and not talking about us. That's the question we want to drill down on. That's Paul's concern. In chapter 2. There's really a couple contrasts that Paul draws for us in in these five verses. He he wants to help us see what he does want and what he doesn't want by by sort of painting this picture, defining it by what it isn't. It's really helpful, I think. I think you'll see that it is, especially in this this passage. So, for example, in verse 1, he says, I didn't come to them with lofty speech. There's one side of the contrast. I think it means impressive language, sort of elitist language, language that was attached to those who were known for being wise, those who were famous for it. He didn't come with that kind of speech. The way he did come, verse 3 says, was in weakness and in fear and in trembling, like a turtle shrinking back into its shell. That's how he preached the message, a message of weakness that fits, or a method of weakness that fits the message of weakness, power through death power through shame. Verse 4 makes the same point. He didn't speak in plausible words of wisdom, he says, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Plausible and demonstration. These are words about proof. These are words about how to get someone to, to agree with you. And he didn't use words that fit the tastes or the, the plausibility structures of the people he was talking to. He wanted to prove the Spirit and the Spirit's power to change somebody. Not sheer logic or reason. He wanted to prove God's power. Gets more at the impact of his words on his hearers. He didn't want them impressed by his presentation, by by his style and how it fit their tastes. What he wanted them impressed by was God's power. He wanted it to prove itself as the only explanation for why they embraced the message of the cross and all of its foolishness. So here's the parallel. You got either wisdom on the one hand or you can have Christ crucified. You can't have both, one or the other. You can have God's power Or you can have wisdom, plausible words. You can't have both. This much is clear, but but we've got work to do. I think we need to understand. I think there's two more questions we want to ask of these verses. Two questions. One, 
What really does he mean by lofty words, plausible wisdom, wisdom of men? We've got to unpack those because it's not exactly clear. And then once we figured out what he means by that, what we've got to ask is, why is it so dangerous? Right? This is some strong language he's using. Why is it so dangerous to couch the gospel in plausible words, lofty speech, wisdom of men, whatever those things mean? Those are the two questions we want to answer. I think we'll, have, we'll be better positioned to talk about us in our day once we got a, a better answer to those two questions. So, so bear with me. First, what does he mean by lofty speech, wisdom, plausible words? I don't think it's that he means the cross is unwise. I mean, he talks in chapter 1, what we looked at last week, about the, the cross being the wisdom of God. It is wise. So talking about the cross is not the same thing as... It's not unwise or foolish in the way that it would be foolish to tell somebody to touch a, 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 a stove eye that's on, right? That's unwise to do. It's not that kind of unwise. It's also not that he's not trying to persuade people. He is trying to persuade them. Saying he's not coming with plausible words is not saying Paul doesn't want to argue for something and try to get people on his side. His whole letter is a series of arguments where he's trying to persuade. All of his letters are that way. So that's not what he's talking about. Really, let me, let me boil it down. Here's, what he, here's, here's the point. He's talking less about the content of his message than about the style of his message. It's less whether or not it, it actually is a good idea to trust the cross. And it's less whether or not he's actually trying to convince people to trust the cross. He is. The point is style, the way he presents his content. See, in that time, in the first century, especially in Roman cities like Corinth, where they were sort of uppity, they were on the up and up, or on the, on the upward swing. They were trying to establish themselves in the ancient world to sort of get, at, get out of their provincial, way away from Rome identity and sort of be like Rome. They were all about oratory. They loved their form of entertainment was to go and hear a good speech. And what they were looking for was much le- had less to do with what that person was going to say than how they would say it, how they would present themselves, what sort of flowery language they would use. And, and it was the goal of these orators to figure out what people like and give it to them, to suit what they say to their tastes. It was first century flash and bling. It was eye-catching special effects of, it, of, of, of their day, right? Lofty speech and plausible words belong to the realm of fashion, of trend, of fad, of taste, of what's hot and what isn't hot. I think that's what he's talking about. That's what it meant to them. It also means that it belongs to what's shifting, to what's unstable, to what Paul says in in verse 6 that we're looking at next week is doomed to pass away. This plausible words, this wisdom belongs to tastes of the moment and it's it's fading. It's here one day and gone the next. That's what he means. So why is it dangerous? Why is it dangerous for Paul to come to them in the way they want him to come to them? to give them what they're looking for, to appeal to their tastes for what makes for good and powerful speech. Here's why it's dangerous. Two steps. It's dangerous because, on the one hand, first, Paul knows that this kind of presentation would attract them to identify with something that can't save them. What's going to draw them in, what's going to seem compelling to them, is going to be less the thing that can save them, Jesus, His cross, and more something that has no power to save, which is whether or not they like this guy who's talking to them. It's going to to convince them to identify themselves, to put their faith in, not the power of God, but the wisdom of men. Now, 
Here's, here's an analogy that helps me. It's basically putting, to, to come with lofty words and plausible wisdom or whatever is to come in the, in the manner of a performer, to put the performance itself at center stage rather than the content. That's what we've been saying. So I think music helps here. Um, when somebody covers an old and familiar song, especially if it's really old, like 100 years old or something, when they cover it in a way that's really current, you know, that's got great instrumentation that fits the style and the rhythms of, of modern music that people like. You, you might like the song itself. Maybe you would be likely to listen to it performed by, you know, the Atlanta Symphony Chorus instead of, you know, filling your favorite popular artist. But chances are what you're going to be attracted to is the way the song is performed, the creative music, uh, musicianship that's applied to this old and maybe even outdated form or, or, or song. That's what you're going to leave talking about. The artist's presentation, their skill, their taste. Maybe you like the song itself, but maybe you don't really like it. Either way, it's not likely to be your focus. Your focus is going to be on how this old thing gets spruced up in a modern way. And Paul doesn't want there to be any chance that what they identify with when he speaks the gospel to them is not Jesus, but him. And the spin that he puts on Jesus and how well it corresponds to what they like to hear. That's what Paul can't handle. He wants their faith in God, not in him. That's the first thing. He doesn't want to attract them just to identify with something that can't save them. Second thing is that if he, if he came in a way that appealed to their tastes, in a way that they would really notice how he talked about the gospel rather than the gospel itself, in that case, he would be feeding their self-centered desire for self-branding their pride in their own good taste, not their identification with something that tells them they have nothing, no hope, nothing that can recommend them to God other than what Jesus has done. We talked about this a couple weeks back, beginning of chapter 1, about how they were, they were aligning themselves with this or that leader, not because of what the leaders were saying. Their, their message was pretty consistent because they liked how the leader said it. We talked about how what, what drives that what drives that I am with him is our desire to be known as certain kinds of people. Like we have a vision of ourselves and we try to build that identity and that presentation to the world. All of us do it. It's very natural. And Paul knows that if he came sprucing up something that had nothing to do with Jesus, that that's what people would latch onto as a way of feeling better about themselves and of presenting themselves to others and maybe even feeling better than others. That that's, what they would, that's how they would use it. It's, it's the, the force that drives marketing, right? All marketing. I read a great quote about this this week in an article. The uh, guy, guy writes, you don't buy a Louis Vuitton bag because you made a judicious evaluation of the quality of the leather. You buy it because you want to be the kind of person who buys Louis Vuitton, right? You take the bag out of it and put anything else in there, and you get the same. It works. You're trying to make a statement about who you are, not what's been done for you, not, not the quality of the thing you're attaching to. Sound familiar? Think back to chapter 1. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of someone who's better, more elevated, more lofty than you. I'm wiser than you, I have better taste than you. Paul treats the kind of presentation that would, that would woo people to attach themselves to him as, as a poison because it is a kind of power. There is a way to build group cohesion appealing to that sort of taste in people. 
but it's a power that is hostile to the power of God through the cross. It can't coexist with God's power by His Spirit. Paul wants minimalism, right? He wants to strip down his message so that it's laser-focused and all about Jesus, and he wants to strip down the way he presents his message so that, it's, so that he comes in weakness and trembling, nothing impressive, nothing tweet-worthy, right, about the way Paul presents Christ. He just presents him simply, plainly, and directly, getting him, taking himself out of the picture. And the reason is that he wants to prove God's power, not his own power. He wants them to be happy in Jesus, not proud of their insider tastes, of their fashionable uh, understanding of the way things work. And ultimately, it's either or. It's either God or it's you identify with something that's fashionable. Any other method would draw attention to Paul for his skills or his power or it would draw attention to them for their good taste. And to whatever extent you're noticing either of those things, to whatever extent you're noticing and latching onto the, the person who's presenting Christ and the way that he does it, instead of Christ himself, to whatever extent you're doing that, to that extent you are taking away from the power of God, writing it out of the picture. To use an economic term, it's a zero-sum game. There's a fixed amount of glory here. There's a fixed amount of credit. And you can give credit for your attachment to the community, for your change in your life to something like lofty speech, plausible words, the way it's presented to you. Or you can give credit to God. And to give credit over here takes credit away from God. It minimizes His power and therefore minimizes your attachment to the only thing that can save you. It's either or. Those two things can't coexist. Now, it is really tough to know how to apply this to us today, right? Uh, it's always tough to, make the, to bridge the gap between this world in which these letters were written to whom they were addressed and, and, and our world. And I think it's especially tough here because Paul's talking about things that always change, this, this realm of fashion and taste and, and presentation that's very different then than it is now. And so the, the, the hard thing for us is to figure out what we might be tempted to do with the gospel in our ministry what methods we might choose to use that would take away from the gospel now because that, that's going to look so different from what Paul's actually writing about. Here's my best attempt, though, to nail down what our version of lofty speech or plausible words might be and how we can avoid giving in to those things in a way that will take away from God's power. I don't think our lofty speech or plausible words is about philosophy or, or history or the humanities. It's certainly not about the power of rhetoric or oratory, right? It's not what it was in Paul's day. How many of you can even name a philosophy professor at Harvard? Do they even have rhetoric professors anymore? I can't and I don't know. I think the power, the cultural power in our day is not in the realm of flashy oratory, but it's in entertainment, and it's in marketing. Entertainment and marketing, those are where the power is in our world. Those are the vehicles of power for communicating something. Nobody knows a philosophy professor at Harvard. Everybody knows who Rihanna is or who Jay-Z is. I mean, this guy's even branching out beyond music. into He's a sports agent now. I don't know why you need to know that, but 
guy's really culturally powerful. He doesn't teach at Harvard. ESPN, that's where the power is, right? It's this juggernaut of cultural influence. It's in advertising and marketing and in entertainment that we see that we see cultural power. So these two realms in particular are where we're going to be attracted as those who have a message to communicate, a sort of product to offer. We're going to be attracted to using methods associated with entertainment or with marketing to connect people to our church and to the gospel. In the same way that Paul and his contemporaries would have been attracted to using things that, were, that fit the tastes or the cultural power of his day, which is a certain way of speaking, we're going to be attracted to, to methods that put the gospel in a way, in a form, that package it in a form that's going to be attractive. And to whatever extent we do that, we're going to be taking away from the power of the cross to claim the power the powers that be in this world is to take away from the weakness and the shame of the cross and the clear demonstration it offers of God's power. Mirroring the weakness of the cross is going to mean not choosing not to use certain means that we could use to pitch ourselves and our message that would have a certain kind of power because we don't want the power that they have. We want God's power and God's power alone. Let me get even more specific. It means that as we work this into, into what we do here at Trinity, it means that we're going to stay away as much as we can from a performance style in our preaching and in our music. Now, that's easier for us because I could never pull off a performance style, and you know that. Like, I'm comfortable here clutching this pulpit, not pacing around and, and trying to draw attention. But, and also let me back up and say, I'm about to give you a positive vision of what we're about. Please don't hear me slamming other ways of doing things. I don't pretend to know a lot about ways other churches are doing things. So this is not meant aimed at anyone in particular that I don't want to be. I'm just trying to give you a, 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 a positive vision of what we're after and of what we feel like we're tempted to, that we're, going, that we're resisting in the name of gospel minimalism. All right? Performance is one of them. Like, because entertainment is power, flash, eye-catching video. Things like that are are where our culture looks, what it longs for, what it understands. We're going to push back from that. Our congregation is going to worship together. Rather than focusing on, on a performance up here in our musicianship, for example, as talented as our musicians are, I mean, we've got amazing music here. I don't want to minimize that. But we're going to try to present it in a way that doesn't draw attention to those who are singing up here and playing up here but in a way that facilitates you guys singing loudly so that you hear each other and are encouraged by it, so that you're telling each other by your songs that Jesus is who he claims to be and his promises are true and they're changing us even now. That's what we want our, our, our music to, to communicate to you, so that you leave talking about Jesus and your experience of him, not about how great the music was, right? We're also going to pursue a, a sort of minimalist marketing or branding Branding is everything in our world today. If you've got a product to sell, you must consider how to sell it best. And there is nothing evil or wrong about marketing, right? Especially in business, you have to do it. And it's, it's a wonderful creative outlet. Um, I, I'm fascinated by advertising and marketing and, and, and good branding. I think it's great. I think as it comes into the church, you've got to be really, really careful because it's powerful. It can create things in a community. 
It can draw people. It can keep people for a while. It can bind people in a certain kind of way, but in a way that is not attached at all to the power of God through Christ and His cross. And therefore, it is not something we want anywhere close to to what we're aiming for here. We want to present the gospel in a way that is minimalist in terms of the branding and the marketing that we associate with it because we don't want anyone to point to whatever success we have in our community and say, man, that was a great marketing campaign. Don't you love the way they branded that preaching series, right? We want the, the gospel, the power of God's spirit through the gospel to be changing people so that no one has any other, and we want to make it clear that there is no other reason that, that, that can explain this change. That means we're going to have to push back against temptations that all of us have felt, me included, to do more to market ourselves in a way that's appealing to the tastes of people today. Now, obviously, everything we do brands us, right? I'm not saying that it's impossible not to decide what you're going to wear. And that kind of brands you a little bit. It's impossible not to use instruments, and those are going to brand you a little bit. And it's impossible not to, you know, in this day and age, it's impossible not to have a website. And whatever it looks like is going to say something about you. And we're committed to communicating with excellence with whatever we decide to communicate. We want excellence because we want to show that we take things seriously. But what we're aiming for is, John, this is John Piper's language, what we're aiming for is undistracting excellence. We want to do things well so that it shows we thought about it, we took things seriously, that we meant for that junk to look the way it does, back there at the back of the room, for example. We thought about it, but we don't want it to be distracting. We don't want what you leave talking about to be how cool this or that was about our presentation. Because to whatever extent, that's why you like Trinity. To that extent, God's power is written out of it. It's a zero-sum game. He won't share credit. And we don't want anything to distract you from the power of God. That's where you want, we want your faith located. Ultimately, the gospel is a kind of message that no one wants to hear. Marketing has its power, whether it's marketing soap or a new car or whatever else, by telling you you can be this certain kind of person if you attach yourself to this product. The product that we offer is the product that invites you to come and die to yourself, to be attached to someone whose, whose life ended in shame. Who had, we're telling you to attach yourself to this person because you have no other hope. There is nothing good in you to offer to God, to make up for what you fail to be. And that is not a message that anyone anywhere has ever wanted to hear. No one except those who have already come to the end of themselves, who have recognized in themselves that they have no hope, who are desperate and thirsty and in need of water. Only to those people does the message of the cross sound beautiful, restful, nourishing. And when we preach this message and when those people respond to it, what power is going to explain that fact? In what power will our faith rest? When people who see Jesus as irrelevant or ridiculous come to see Him and His cross as beautiful and life-giving, we want there to be no confusion about what's happened. It wasn't clever branding. It wasn't a witty or tweet-worthy turn of phrase. It wasn't the prospect of powerful connections in our community. It was the power of God. And when sinful and self-centered people start forgiving each other for their weaknesses, 
when sinful and self-centered people like me start resolving to give to others rather than receive, when we grow to consider ourselves more important, or consider others more important than ourselves, we don't want any confusion about what's happened. It wasn't that we'd finally found a group of people who are exactly like us, who share all of our interests, all of our tastes, who share something like our past. It was that we have found a community and built a community that is centered on Christ, on what he offers us through his death, on what only God's power working through him can do in us. That's what we want to be about. That's what we mean by gospel-centered minimalism. That's what we aim at. That's what we, that's what we haven't arrived at. So that's what we pray for together as a community, that God would do this work in us. Let's do that now. Let's pray to God to focus us on his cross. Father, we... We want power. We want lives changed. We want things that can't be done by our wisdom, our communication style, our performance, our insight into the tastes of our consumers. We want things that can only be done by your power. We want you to get the glory for it. We want our faith to be deeper because of it. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us faith in Christ and a community that is built around him. And do it for, the, for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.
continue worship this morning. We'll take up an offering, and parents invite you to go and get your children, and then head back and join us for the benediction and for the last song together.
invitation. I invite you now to stand up for the benediction, and I also want to remind you, invite you again to be with us tonight for a special time of prayer over some of the stuff that we've talked about this morning. We're going to pray that God will keep us faithful to focusing in with laser-like focus on Jesus and His cross and celebrating living from that place together. Now, the gospel message to you is this. God has come to us in Jesus. He has died for us once and for all. And in that message is life and hope and peace and joy. So let's go out together, identifying with Him, prizing Him, resting and trusting in Him and in Him alone. Go in peace. Amen. The steadfast love of the Lord never sees.